Well, first of all, Salesforce is just a, an application. So if you're layering that over top of bad processes or folks who don't want to utilize Salesforce, it's, it's, you're going to be doomed to fail. So the change management piece becomes huge. Hello, and welcome to Banking on Disruption. I'm Fred Kavena. We have another awesome guest on deck for episode 10, banking and credit union leader, Chris Trivers. Dane and I had a great time talking with Chris, discussing everything he's learned in leading Salesforce implementations at several different institutions. After our interview, we have something different in store for Quick Takes. I'll leave the details as a surprise, but the topics we include Salesforce's investment in Hugging Face, office leasing trends, and a very, very special Dreamforce announcement. While you're listening to the podcast, why not take a moment to follow us on LinkedIn at the Banking on Disruption podcast and on Instagram at at Banking on Disruption. Now sit back and strap in because our show is coming to you right now. And welcome back. On this episode, Dane and I are excited to welcome Chris Trivers. Chris has been in the Salesforce ecosystem for 15 years, and he's currently vice president and enterprise Salesforce leader for Valley Strong Credit Union. Previously, he was SVP enterprise sales leader for City National Bank and TD Bank, and he also worked at GE Capital in Salesforce and Siebel CRM applications. Chris, welcome. I think you and I got involved in the Salesforce ecosystem around the same time. I was a total accidental admin. I worked for a financial services company at the time, leading an operations modernization program. And one day my boss came to my office and told me, we just signed a contract with Salesforce. It's now part of your responsibility. You've got six months to get it live and delivering value. So good luck. (laughs) But it's all been uphill since then. I'd love to hear just out of the gate your Salesforce origin story. How did you get started working with the platform? Well, it's very similar accidental admin. I, I had been a power user of uh, Siebel for many years and owned it for what we used to call a G Capital, the bubble that I was in, uh, corporate financial services. And when the credit crisis hit in 2008, they decided to treat G Capital like a operating company and wanted to utilize Salesforce, kind of roll up all the various the 13 different divisions essentially into into one to get a better you know overall picture of what was going on in, in the various business units. So I was relieved to find that I wasn't uh, kicked out on the street, but then concerned <laughs> when they said that, hey, we're going to be rolling out this thing called Salesforce. And I was shocked at the time. Hey, I'm not in IT. I, I was in marketing. I, what do I know about um, <laughs> Salesforce? So that was kind of my initial initial entree in, in, into Salesforce. And then we essentially rolled out Salesforce to our entire uh, GE Capital business. And from there, I, I became like the admin for the corporate finance group. That's fantastic. And and I love that that long history across those organizations for, you know, 15 years, you've led Salesforce implementations at four different places. Curious, how has the approach to digital transformation in Salesforce evolved over the last 15 years? 
I mean, the biggest thing that, that I actually finally experience now is the industry models. So, you know, for when I first started, it was taking sales cloud and um, doing a lot of customization to try to make it work for financial services. Over the years, you know, fast forward to where I am now, we have the financial services cloud that we're utilizing. And that's probably been the, the biggest piece of that, along with the growth, I would say, of the Salesforce ecosystem. I mean, there's literally a something from the app store that you know can solve just about any need if it's not built into Salesforce. So I, I would say probably those two biggest pieces of you know, industry specialization, and then, you know, just the ecosystem growing around Salesforce has been pretty remarkable to see in the last 15 years. Amazing. Chris, reflecting back, what are some of the key lessons learned through those organizations, through those different implementations, et cetera? Anything stand out? Well, first of all, Salesforce is just an application. So, if you're layering that over top of bad processes or folks who don't want to utilize Salesforce, it's, it's, you're going to be doomed to fail. So the change management piece becomes huge you know, to, to utilize in, in Salesforce. And I've always been fortunate that you know, we've had some great executive management buy-in, but that becomes crucial. And then the other piece of it is is make sure that you have a great internal team and, and a great system integrator to, to help you along the way. Those would probably be the, the, the biggest things that I would point to. Mm. What are some of the notable differences you've seen in how various financial services companies approach Salesforce and digital transformation? And how is organizational culture impacted? So I would say the biggest thing is in banking, you can either have a lot of silos where you lock everything up and, hey, the wealth people can't see what the consumer side can see and the business banking can't see it. And you have all these little silos that, that lock it down. But the, the, bit, the better way to do it is, is have a, uh, more of an open sharing model where everybody sees what, they, what the other people are doing and it really unleashes the power of that. That's really one thing. And then the other thing is, I think I touched on this earlier, but it's, it's building that internal Salesforce practice, if you will. So do you have an in-house team of experts, both on the functional and the technical side to help you grow the product and meet the needs? Mm. You know, as a follow-up, like when you're working with those different business unit leaders, talking with them about breaking down those silos, what are, describe some of those conversations. How are you getting through to them and getting that buy-in, right? Where they, they, they want to bring all that data together and and leverage it. Yeah, so I mean, part of it is making the commitment, right? Signing the, that big check. Part of it is making the personal commitment that that they're going to utilize Salesforce and not be utilizing Excel spreadsheets to do everything. You know, culturally, mm-hmm. we a lot of a lot of people have been very successful have have lived by their Excel spreadsheets. You know, to to do pipeline meetings or to track certain things, and you just have to get out of that that culture of, of doing that. Do it real time in Salesforce. Hey, if, if the opportunity needs to be updated in a sales stage, do it right there on the screens. You know, have your your pipeline meetings right right from within Salesforce. So that would be one thing. And then the other thing, at least in financial services, we have a ton 
of processes that rely on things like SharePoint, Microsoft Outlook, you know, all these various things. And if you can centralize a lot of those and streamline those processes within Salesforce, you get you know a lot of buy-in, a lot of efficiencies, a lot a lot of buy-ins in term, terms of, of that. So, you know, particularly in a regulated industry like financial services, you don't want data floating around in SharePoints or um, Excels or Outlooks, emails, right? You want to have it all centralized in Salesforce. That, then you unlock the power of, of the transparency, the ability to do reporting, you know, react on a dime. You know, you don't have to have, you know, executive assistants piecing together a lot of different Excel spreadsheets. So it's really trying to break down what has made people successful and try to push them into the, you know, the, the more more modern tech stack that is Salesforce. Yeah, I love that. And I, I couldn't agree more that attacking the the culture and having that executive top-down support to really, you know, leverage Salesforce model, running things like sales meetings, pipeline meetings out of Salesforce. I mean, I think that is crucial. I'm curious from the from the bottoms up approach, any any tips or techniques from the field to to really get that buy-in from from the bottom up as well? Well, I mean, that's a great question. I mean, some of the, the best ideas that we've had have come from you know lines of businesses. So you have to have a an ear to those folks. You have to have, you know, a a process, whether it's monthly meetings or quarterly meetings or things like that, where you're getting that that information. And then some of the other organizations that that I've been in, we We've had what we call Salesforce champions or subject matter experts, and they kind of help bubble up information from their particular line of business and and bring it to a more centralized location to, to make it become reality. But it's really oftentimes I find myself communicating up and, and also communicating down in terms of getting great ideas because they can come from they can come from anywhere. And then just having making sure that you have that process internally to make those become a reality, whether that's through a, you know, a system integrator or through a, you know, kind of an in-house practice, if you will. No, that's, that's awesome. I, I love that. Just shifting gears a little here, you know, you've seen a lot in the last 15 years, obviously a lot of change. For today, what are some of the biggest challenges that you see financial services companies facing as they're dealing with digital transformation? And any thoughts, recommendations on how they can overcome those obstacles? Well, a lot of what we're seeing today in the industry is all about how do we get more deposits? How do we keep companies, you know, sticky uh, or, you know, companies or, or individuals sticky in terms of, of not running to that that rate? So, you know, it's that that becomes a big thing. You know, we, we have started to, we have implemented uh, marketing cloud. So it's really like, the combination of the various clouds. So we have financial services cloud, we have marketing cloud, and we have MuleSoft. It's like, how do those work together to give uh, a more connected, in our case, member experience, but it could be a prospect or it could be a you know client experience, depending what it is. So that's huge, right? It's like, how do you interconnect the, the various clouds? How do you make processes more efficient? But it, a lot of times it's all about getting that you know, getting the, the that new loan or new deposit into the house because it's, it, 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 you know, at least from financial services perspective, I haven't seen this type of environment since probably 2008 when I, when I started. So it's it's a combination of efficiencies. 
it's a combination of you know top line growth, right? So you want to hit both the top line and and the bottom line, and and I believe Salesforce can help in in both of those. No, uh, it's, that's that's very insightful, and and certainly, you know, everybody thinks about you know sales first with Salesforce. Sales is right in the in the name. Service has a lot of strong use cases and and marketing as well, and kind of tar- tying that marketing to sales motion together. I think your your spot on is critical, especially for deposit gathering institutions like credit unions. I'm curious whether it's from today or just you know over over your history working with the platform beyond kind of that core sales service and marketing. Can you share any innovative ways you've seen companies in financial services use Salesforce that are really delivering a lot of value? Well, I would say in my last firm, the big aha moment was, you know, the the PPP crisis during the pandemic. You know, financial services had to pivot real quickly. Luckily, we already had the foundation of sales service and marketing clouds, but it was one of the first times that we really stitched together the various clouds and, and process to kind of make an end-to-end solution, if you will. So, you know, getting getting folks to submit their applications use, via Salesforce communities, that then having it come into the sales cloud and, and marketing through through them through the marketing cloud, that was the big aha because we did it so fast, we didn't have a choice. And, regulations and uh, that we got from the SBA were, were changing, you know, and we even had bots that went to the SBA to, you know, to, to book the, to, to book the loan. So it was kind mm-hmm. of, and from cradle to grave, all done in a matter of months. And it really opened the eyes, I think, of the organization that, hey, this is the power of Salesforce. It's not just a Salesforce automation tool. It's, it's about building a better end-to-end process. So I would say that's probably the big the biggest thing, you know, coupling that with, uh, at the time, Einstein, you know, the, the, the BI and the machine learning aspect of it really helped, you know, helped the organization in a critical period of time. But personally, it helped grow the, the reputation of Salesforce at, at the bank. That me, Fred? It's you now. <laughs> Next question, Chris, is it kind of centers on, you know, economic conditions and impact, et cetera. The question is, how has the current economic environment impacted priorities and investments in digital transformation for financial institutions? Well, it's, it's an interesting time because you, you both have the pressure and the opportunity with decreasing budgets and priorities to show the value that you get from Salesforce. So it's it, it, it's kind of a tale of two cities, right? You know, you have you have budgets being looked at, but if you can show the value you get from Salesforce, that becomes huge, as well as laying that foundation of what Salesforce can can do for the oper- for for the organization. So I mean, I would kind of point to that that it, it does make it it does make it tougher, right? Checks are not as easy to write, you know, particularly in a an increasing rate environment but mm-hmm. uh, the uh, the other piece of that is is that you know the digital side getting more business from your phone or from your members coming coming in through that channel becomes increasingly important because whether you're in a credit union whether you're in a bank the branch becomes is, is really really expensive model so you can get you know 
deposits coming in via the the digital channel that that's an awesome thing so it's it's really like trying to pivot and making sure that you're focused on both the top line and the bottom line and trying to meet the 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 consumers where they live and, and these days that's increasingly more you know mobile or di- or digital mm. what financial services salesforce use cases or innovations have most impressed you recently are there any compelling examples you'd like to share? Well, we're real deep into the deployment of financial services cloud. When I saw financial services cloud, I don't know, maybe about five, 10 years ago, it was, it was just really a marketing ploy. And when I was at the bank, we essentially built a customized financial services cloud, which is awesome. But it was a lot of work, took a lot of, lot of really talented people to keep it going. And fast forward to when I, when I joined the credit union, we have a best-in-class financial services cloud where a lot of the things that we built at the bank were already built for us. So that, that to me was, you know, I, I underestimated like how much is really expanded in, in, in that time period since we first looked at it to now when, when, I, when, I do, when I'm involved with it now. So I think that was a big piece of it. You know, the, the other piece of it is is the the AI and machine learning piece of it. You know, Chat GPT, all that stuff. I have yet to experience Chat GPT, but you know, it it really gives you a lot more sizzle, shall we say, with with their traditional Salesforce offering. So it's it's you know a lot has happened. I would say in the last five years, you know, communities is there having that portal. You know, I know when, when I was at G Capital many moons ago, they, they were trying to create a customer portal, but they were trying to do it through traditional means and not Salesforce. If we had communities at a time, that would have made made that effort so much easier. Um, so it's, it's there's a lot of things there that, that, that do it. So it's the industry model. It's the CRMA. It's the uh, chat GPT, you know, it just keeps coming. Innovations are just keep coming fast and furious, which I think is a great thing. Makes it a little bit challenging to try to keep up with that. Like, like what's the <laughs> difference between, between some of the things, but it, it, it is kind of cool to see how much innovation Salesforce has thrown into their product. Just a quick, quick follow-up question. I mean, outside of the obvious is coming across articles and that sort of thing. What steps are you taking to keep up with all of the the changes, the innovations, the different product names, et cetera? Do you go to a lot of the industry events or, you know, how, how do you keep up with it? Well, one of the things that, that we did at City National was we, we had a capabilities matrix. So here's, a, here's the 20 things that the sales cloud would offer and is that something that we are currently offering? And we, we kind of measured that, right? So it was, you know, at the time, I think we were using, when I left, about 80% of the sales cloud. But as a product-focused professional, or, you know, that was kind of part of my my personal metrics to say, hey, how much bang are we getting from the buck by using all these capabilities? And, you know, and that included things that were add-ons, that included things that were purchase different SKUs, and then that also included different, you know, type of, you know, capabilities from, from the sales cloud. And we did that for the marketing cloud. We did that for, for this, the service cloud as well. So kind of really a capabilities focus of that. And it did get tough, like, you know, things were merged, things were renamed, what have you. But we, we looked, we, we updated those like once a year to ensure that, 
you know, again, our focus was on using as much as we can that we ate either had inherent in, in our particular cloud or that we purchased in, you know, as, as an add-on. And, you know, so that, that was a big piece of it. You know, I would say the other piece of it is, is something is, is interesting, you know, do a POC, you know, get a small group, try to talk Salesforce into getting a, you know, a free con- free licenses and test mm-hmm. it out. There's nothing, you know, there's nothing that works better than than something that works in your own organization. And you know, Salesforce being a sales oriented organization, on the one hand, they don't want to give away free licenses, but on the other hand, they want to make sure that you that you are buying things, you know, like Einstein or AKA uh, CRM CRMA, because you know that that's how they get incented, and and that's you know, how you slowly start to build the business case. Hey, it worked for this group. They talk to another group. They want to come in. So I, I can't stress that enough is like, hey, try, try out, try it out. You might find things that you don't love about it. <laughs> uh, you might find things that that um, solves a lot of pain, pain points. So it's, you know, as much as you can do that, either free or in smaller purchases, I think is, is an awesome thing. Yeah, I love that idea. I think that you're you're spot on, and you know you're right. You know, obviously, Salesforce is wanting people to to purchase more licenses, but I will say, and and I'd love to hear some of your advice on how you've organized that talk track. When I've gone in, either as a client or you know as a partner working with one of my clients, you know, to Salesforce to have those conversations, just you know treating Salesforce as a partner and saying, hey, this is this is what we're thinking. This is the business challenge. This is the product set that we don't own that we think might solve the challenge. And, you know, we've laid out this POC and here's the success criteria. And you know what? At the end of the day, if it solves the problem and there's the ROI, then there will be an order for it. And, you know, how about working together on this? And I've usually found, you know, Salesforce to be pretty open to those kinds of conversations. I'm, I'm curious. It sounds like you've had some pretty good success with with a similar approach in the past yeah i mean it's the old way is to treat the the sales team of any organization as an adversarial you know it's a a zero-sum gain i win you lose or you know they win and i lose but the reality is is that if you partner with you know salesforce they're they are very open to doing things like that and, and treat them like a a partner treat them like I always view myself as the external advocate or internal advocate, I should say, at the institution that I'm in. So the more I can work with the the account executive and their their team, the better off we'll be. And sometimes that's easier said than done. It all comes down to how how talented they are, how busy they are, and, and things of that nature. But I want Salesforce to succeed almost as much as they they do. I mean, if you have that relationship, I think it's it's a good thing. That's where you get those great ideas from, or the the the, you know, the POCs become more applicable because you have that that kind of symbiotic relationship. Yeah, totally. I, I love that. You know, I'm curious. I mean, there believe it or not, there's still some greenfield out there. There's still some organizations without Salesforce, and they're just you know, kicking off their journey. There's a lot more, I think, that are, you know, going through some of what you're describing with transitioning from not having FSC to having FSC. So whether it's it's net new Greenfield or whether it's a, a big reset on your Salesforce program, what advice would you give to financial institutions that are just getting started on a big journey like that? And, and what are some things they should be aware of, like pitfalls to watch out for on the way? Well, one of the things that that attracted me about my my current role at 
out Valley Strong is that they are going through that greenfield piece. So I feel like I can I can talk to that in with expertise. It's it's really to make sure again that you have the executive support that you have done the appropriate needs analysis that you have a great partner and you know what success looks like. So what what are the metrics that you look like? But it's the other piece of it is is try to build it in a organized way. Hey, you don't want to come out with all the bells and whistles and, and have the organization not ready for it. So that that's important. It's also important to make sure that you're building that in it, that you have the budgets for it, that you have the 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 experts for it. You know, sometimes we look at the licenses, sometimes we look at the the costs, but just equally as important is do you have the right folks to run it? One of the things that I kind of live my career on is I view Salesforce as a product, not as a project. And any product, it's a living thing. You have to nurture it. You have to water it. You have to prune it. You have to do all those things, or it's not going to grow as, as prudently as you want. So going in with that mindset, I think, is extremely important. Hey, it's not a traditional IT initiative where you're going to roll out a core mainframe and you may be you may be done with it, right? Something that you're going to have to continue to build. You're going to have to continue to nurture, and that includes you know having the right people, having the right right budgets, and and things of that nature. I think it's critically important to treat Salesforce as a product and treat it as a whether you're running in in, in some kind of a formal agile fashion or or not, but making sure the users know that there's a, a roadmap and there's more features coming and that they should be thinking about what's the next thing they can leverage with the platform and so that you you don't get into a situation where you're creating more and more data silos. So I, I'd love any tips or, or tricks you have in helping organizations understand that mindset, Sift. I, I know that for me, when I've worked with clients in the past, especially in financial services, you know, there's a lot of a lot of waterfall to overcome. A lot of I better get every feature in right now because nobody's going to touch this for the next ten years unless I get everything I want right now, and that's just not the right mindset. Now you're 100 percent right. I go back to when when I was the involved in the Siebel side of it. Everything was a million dollars, and everything was a nine <laughs> project. Right? I had to throw all that stuff at at the owners to get that, and what we what we ended up building was was awesome but it was also it also looked like an excel spreadsheet on steroids there were a lot of fields that need to build right so the cool thing about salesforce is you cut that time market down but that's both a blessing and a curse right so i can throw in 20 new fields in a matter of minutes in, in salesforce but then you start to build that excel spreadsheet on on steroids look so part of it is having the governance so you have a way to uh, approve something. Hey, you don't want to have 20 fields that talk about volume the same way. You don't want to have 20 thing, 20 sales stages that say um, different version of application accepted or application received. So how do you have that governance built in? Do you have that mindset? And then I think you also touched on it. Just ha- do you have a process to to get those ideas, to groom them out, to to get them over to the developers, whether that's an internal team or an external team, and then kind of watch walk, walk that go through. Having that published, having a, a specific 
agile process where you are having a release schedule on X amount of, of period, whether it's biweekly, whether it's monthly, whether it's you know quarterly, whatever that is, getting, getting that stuff into the pipeline becomes extremely important. And then it's, it's, you know, taking that little Missouri motto, like, show me, you know, you have to show, <laughs> users have to see that they don't have to get everything in that first bite, that they, that they can take multiple ways to get that uh, information or fields in, into Salesforce. So, you know, some of that is, is, it becomes important just to show through the earliest iterations that, hey, we're, we didn't get it perfect, but we, we continue to iterate until we you know get it better and better and better. Yeah, I love that. As a final question, this one's future focused. What do you think will differentiate financial leaders three to five years from now when it comes to digital transformation and Salesforce? And then with that, what would you tell your peers to focus on now? That's an amazing question. I'm still trying to get through the the week, but <laughs> part of it is we tend in any business, but financial services are always chasing after the next shiny new object, right? Hey, this application can do X and it's best in class. You have to step back and say, and have more of an enterprise architecture approach to it and say, hey, we have this huge investment in Salesforce. Is there something that we can build or buy with Salesforce that allows us to accomplish that same task? And that's an evolving thing and you need buy-in from everybody, right? Because some line of business might want this really cool, shiny new object, but there's a pretty good chance with Salesforce being the market leader that that you can either build or, or buy something that, that accomplishes the same thing. And at least in financial services, we don't want to have 800 vendors, right? That's, you know, you have to have a process for tracking those. You have to have, you know, due diligence on all those. So it just makes sense to make sure that that you are limiting your tech stack. So I, I, I would say that is, is, is number one. You know, number two is, you know, always think from, in our case, the member's perspective first. You know, things are changing. They're not coming into the branches. They're wanting to do things more, more mobile. How do you get that done? And then, then it's like, don't be afraid to, to try new things. You know, the, the machine learning, you know, serving up the next best product, all those things make the uh, team members roll that much easier. So that becomes important. And then always keep your eye on the future, right? Are there other partners that you look at? Uh, you know, the example that I always give is 10 years ago, I was at Dreamforce and saw this small little company called Encino. And I was like, <laughs> they had this little booth, you know, they, they were, you know, just 10 guys from North Carolina, you know, but it intrigued me like, hey, I, how do you get that you know, you don't have to leave Salesforce to, to, to get a loan approved, all that information will right back to Salesforce. That's a beautiful thing. And, you know, just following that, their trajectory, you know, it's like, there's no way that, you know, it's great. That'll only work in a small little organization, but in, in a big bank, it'll never work. Well, fast forward five, 10 years later, most of the banks that I was at, 2D Bank being the first and, and one of the biggest, uh, then City National all started to go to to you know Encino. So it's it's looking at what what is coming down the pike, and it, it may not be time to utilize it. You know, maybe Chat GT, GPT is not the right, uh, best time to be rolling that out, but who knows? In in five years, it might be, and, and that's what I found with Encino. 
is that, you know, you just get connected. You just see that, you know, over the time that that started to solve a really bad use case that that we needed to be solved at, at TD at the time and then eventually at, at, at C National. So it, it's amazing how that, you know, one small little connection with that, having an open mind and being able to do that just really helps to get make the future now. Financial services is, is a funny place. It, we're not the most forward thinking industry, <laughs> um, <laughs> which I'm, I'm sure Fred, obviously, uh, you, you can attest to. But sooner or later, we, we have to we, we are catching up with some of the other industries. We're, ca- we're doing a lot more innovative things. And, you know, sometimes it's just going back to the future and looking at the playbooks that, that either we didn't think at the time or that under other industries are using and, and, and deploying those in financial services. So, yeah, so- absolutely. I frequently take inspiration from what I see happening in other industries. I mean, I, I've, I've been in this financial services game for, for 25 years, you know, first uh, on the client side and now in consulting, but there's a lot to be learned from what is happening in, you know, CPG or what's happening in manufacturing and, and what's happening in other places. And I think the more you can draw those insights into into your program, the the more innovative you can be as a financial services company. I also really love what you were you said at the beginning of your response around like simplifying the tech stack, looking at what you already own, and this kind of harkens back to one of those earlier themes, right? Looking at what you already own and what can you accomplish, and maybe it's not adding the latest whiz-bang new tool, because guess what? Not only is it something else to maintain, but if you really want that customer 360, you've got to then spend money and time and effort to integrate that back into the rest of the stack. So I think you're spot on with all of that. I, I really appreciate the conversation, Chris. This has been phenomenal. Thank you for your time. As we wrap up, we'd just love if you could tell our listeners if they're looking to reach out, make a connection with you, what's the best way for them to find you? Find me on LinkedIn is probably the easiest place if I'm not not accept most uh, most applications, connections, I should say. So that's probably the, the best way, just Chris Trivers, T-R-I-V-E-R-S, just like it sounds. And there's not too many Trivers out, out there <laughs> who, who, who uh, so it's, it, I should be somewhat easy to find. Sounds great. And we'll definitely put a link to your LinkedIn profile in the show notes. So really appreciate your time and thank you very much. We'll hopefully talk again really soon. I appreciate it, guys. It's been fun. And we're back with Quick Takes. Well, kind of. We record Quick Takes the day before the podcast airs. However, Dane was unavailable this week for our normal banter. In the spirit of our tech-oriented pod, I've invited an AI bot to be our guest co-host for Quick Takes this week. Say hi, Charlotte. Hi, Charlotte. Wow. Let's see if you keep that dry wit with you for the rest of the segment. So, Charlotte, you're up. What's first on deck this week? Thanks, Fred. First up this week, big story out Tuesday that Salesforce is leading a $200 million round of financing for AI startup Hugging Face. The proposed round, which will more than double the privately held company's valuation, which currently stands at $2 billion, will reportedly come from Salesforce's venture capital arm, Salesforce Ventures, along with several other unnamed backers. Salesforce may be paying a high price for a piece of Hugging Face, which runs a service that helps companies store and use AI software, similar to the way GitHub lets developers store software code. The new funding valued the startup at more than 100 times its annualized revenue. Fred, what are your thoughts on this? 
So I love this story and this development. First off, when you think about what Hugging Face does, providing tools to enable users to build, train, and deploy machine learning models based on open source code and technologies, it makes a perfect complement to Salesforce's approach to trusted AI. Hugging Face makes it easy for developers to share tools, models, model weights, and data sets, is a perfect setup for companies who may want to build and train their own AI model to use with Salesforce or other internal apps. Now, Salesforce Ventures has a long history of investing in new tech companies. The roster includes hundreds of names, including a bunch of tools that I use every day, like Zoom, Airtable, Snowflake, Dropbox, and many more. In some cases, these investments have turned into outright acquisitions for Salesforce. Good examples would be MuleSoft and Velocity, which became the underlying technology behind the industry clouds. But in most cases, the companies remain private, go public through an IPO, or get acquired by a firm other than Salesforce. Salesforce is a really well-run company, and in my experience, they've invested not only money, but also leadership in many of the companies where Venture invests. So I think this could be great for Hugging Face. As for the valuation, I can totally see how that would seem high. Like GitHub, Hugging Face has a freemium model. And even with the popularity of generative AI so far, a lot of people haven't really delved into standing up their own models. I'm not surprised the revenue number is as small as it is right now, but I got to think that that number only goes up as more companies are sorting out how they'll approach generative AI and dip their toes into creating their own specialized models. So all in all, I'm super excited for this investment and we'll definitely keep on top of additional developments. Yeah, I agree that this is a story to keep an eye on. I'd like to pivot now to a story from a theme you and Dane have talked about extensively on the podcast before a return to work and traditional office space. According to a Wall Street Journal report, office tenants are renewing leases, but for far less space. In the second quarter, U.S. businesses signed new leases for an estimated 97.5 million square feet, up from 57.4 million square feet in the second quarter of 2020. Yet in the second quarter, the average U.S. office lease size was 3,275 square feet, or 19 less than the average lease size between 2015 and 2019. The article theorizes that many businesses are shrinking space because of hybrid workplace policies. Currently, 61 of U.S. companies allow employees remote work part, or all of the week, up from 51 at the beginning of the year. Fred, I know last episode you and Dane discussed Zoom calling for employees to return to the office three days a week. What do you think is going on with these two trends? Oh gosh, Charlotte. It seems the headlines on hybrid work keep whipsawing more than the S&P 500. I actually think this story makes sense with the broader trends we've been discussing on the pod. Generally, companies can see that hybrid work isn't going anywhere. With some employees staying remote most or all the time, and others spending some regular time in the office. All this means less demand for space overall, and probably more flex space. Assuming that kitchens, restrooms, and other mixed space stays flat, conference rooms and phone rooms increase a bit, and desks and dedicated offices drop down, a net 19% reduction in lease size makes total sense to me. I'm still on the work-from-home hybrid bandwagon. For many white-collar office roles, 80% or more of job functions can be done as effectively from home. I'm a big advocate for home by default, office when needed. It gives your employees more flexibility and more time, even just by avoiding the commute, which is now an average of an hour round trip across the U.S. Well, one advantage of being an AI is that I never have to commute. Another thing I don't have to worry about is travel headaches. But Fred, 
I know you spend a lot of time on the road meeting with clients, partners. I saw this week that new hotel policies mean that often guests who want to check in early or check out late are increasingly hit with new fees. While plenty of hotels still try to honor early check-in or late checkout, the next time you travel, you may be in for a major disappointment. Yeah, I gotta say, this one hits a little close to home. This is one where your loyalty may pay off. I'm a Starwood turned Bonvoy traveler and have been top or second tier for as long as I can remember. Probably 90% or more of my stays each year are at a Marriott family property. And one of the perks is guaranteed late checkout. So with very few exceptions, like a few times that I've stayed at convention hotels, I get to stay in my room free up to 4 p.m., which is really nice, especially if I want to try to get back and change after a meeting and before I go to the airport. That said, I've seen the trend. A few weeks ago, I had to unexpectedly stay at a Grand Hyatt. Uh, I've got no status there. And this is no shade on the hotel. The hotel was phenomenal. But late checkouts were definitely at a price. Lucky for me, I didn't need one that day. And as a traveler, I can get that this can be frustrating. I also see the hotel side, especially in peak demand. It takes a lot of effort to turn rooms, and even more so if you have to do it early and late in the day. So my tip to our audience is try to reach out in advance if you can. For me, the Marriott app lets you put in your arrival and departure times about a day ahead of arrival. And like all things in travel, keep a cool head and understand that sometimes it's just too busy for a hotel to accommodate your special request. For sure, something for our listeners to keep in mind, especially with Dreamforce coming up in just over two weeks. On the Dreamforce front, I understand you have an exciting Dreamforce announcement. Yeah, I'm really stoked that we were able to pull together a meet and greet for the podcast during Dreamforce. Many thanks to Formstack, who's co-hosting this with us in their space. We're on Howard Street, short five-minute stroll north of the Moscone Center, which is a phenomenal location. We'll be posting a link on the feed and also on the website where you can come in and register. We do ask that you register in advance, but it's Wednesday the 13th from 4 to 6 p.m., at the Formstack space. I'll be there. Many of our, our guests that have been on the podcast will be there, and we're really excited to welcome our listeners to come and join, mix, mingle, talk to me, talk to our guests. We'd just love to hear you. We'd, we'd love additional questions. One of the things we've talked about doing on the podcast and haven't fit in yet is listener questions, but this is a great opportunity to get your listener questions answered by myself or by our guests in real time. So, Hopefully, I know Dreamforce is a, is a packed week. We tried to set this up at, at a good time where kind of the sessions were waning towards the end of the day, well before the concert, well before, you know, some of the bigger marquee pre-concert parties, really close to the, the, the convention center. So stop in, grab a drink, recharge yourself, recharge your devices, and hopefully we'll have a great crowd and some great conversations. That's awesome. Sounds like a fun party. I guess my virtual invite got lost in the email. Well, I don't know the logistics of getting an AI bot into the party, but if we can make that happen, I'd love to see you there, Charlotte. And thank you, everyone, for tuning in to this edition of Quick Takes with a little bit different format. Hope you enjoyed it. Well, everyone, we hope you enjoyed Episode 10 of Banking on Disruption. Don't forget, you can find show notes and a full transcript of the show on our website, bankingondisruption.com. If you liked what you heard today, please subscribe to the podcast and leave us a review. New episodes drop every other Thursday, so we'll see you in two weeks. And in the meantime, don't forget to follow us on LinkedIn and Instagram at at
banking on disruption. Until next time, this is Fred Cavena, wishing you success in your digital pursuits. <laughs> <laughs>